the Dead Ladies Show podcast. The Dead Ladies Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling on stage here in Berlin and beyond. Then we bring you a delightfully curated selection of those stories here on the podcast. I'm Susan Stone, and here with me is Dead Lady Show co-founder Florine Dysons. Hello, nice to see you. Hello, Susan. It's spring. It's spring, and you are dressed in a remarkably springy way with um, at least three colors, which is <laughs> very fantastic. Um, all the flowers. It's not very Berlin, I know, but I, I try to bring some floral color to this um, famously rather dourly dressed town. It's giving me joy. And we are giving you dead ladies. So in this episode, though, we are going to hear about a challenging and troubled woman. Juna Barnes was a novelist and journalist and illustrator and artist who was at the heart of bohemian life in New York and Paris, though perhaps not quite as much as she would like. She once called herself the most famous unknown in the world. Telling us all about Juna Barnes will be translator Laura Radosh, who you may remember from a previous episode when she introduced us to Irish pirate Grace O'Malley, or um, Grania Whale, if you're pronouncing the original Gaelic. She has a habit of dressing up to coordinate with her dead ladies. Uh, last time she wore pirate gear, and this time to commemorate Juna Barnes's iconic portrait by uh, photographer Bernice Abbott, who I talked about a couple episodes ago. She wore a bold polka dot scarf, just like Juna wears in the picture. On a more serious note, Laura describes Juna's early years as a trigger-warning life, so please note some aspects of her story, particularly her family life, are disturbing. Juna Barnes. You see, I dressed to match her. (laughs) Polka dots in black, it's... (laughs) 1892 to 1982. So, you know, it's one of those people who you admire later and say, I could have met her. It it turns out not to have been true, you'll see. Um, (laughs) This quote is from the Lady's Almanac. We'll come to that later. And she asks, Was not Sappho herself, though given to singing over the limp bodies of girls, like any noisy nightingale, nevertheless held in great respect by the philosophers of her time? Probably Juna would like to have been thought of as a philosopher. We're going to be looking mostly at her sort of life as fiction, or her fiction as life, something novelists hate. But (laughs) um, basically everyone who was a literary anyone between 1920 and 1980 has a Juna Barnes story. Um, This presentation is littered with dead ladies. So even um, Siri Hustvedt, who I refuse to read because of her choice in husbands... It's, a, it's, it's the kind of judgmental thing that bonds me with Juno. Um, has a story, she was new in New York from some provincial nest and reading Nightwood, which is her most famous novel, Nachtgewächs in German, on the subway, and some random woman says, oh, you're reading Juno Barnes, would you like her address? This is kind of strange anyway, but it's particularly strange because the last 40 years of her life, Juna lived here on um, Patchen Place in the West Village and basically never left her apartment. Um, E.E. Cummings lived across the way and used to call out, you know, are you alive? 
because he wasn't sure. And, you know, Carson McCullers really wanted to meet her and would leave whiskey on the doorstep and slept on the doorstep a couple of times to no avail. But, you know, but, but some friend thought she would like to have, you know, the stranger have her address. And Siri Husfet wrote her a postcard. And a year and a half later, as she strangely, proudly told NPR, she got a shaky handwritten, she suffered from rheumatism, a reply saying, your letter disturbed me. There she is. That's probably from the 30s. The Bernice Abbott, the photographer, took many of the photos that we'll see here today. They're wonderful. She, they were roommates at some point, somewhere. Juno grew up in um, Croton on Hudson. It's a dysfunctional family to make your family look really, really sane. It's a, <laughs> it's a trigger warning life here. She grew up with some. Um, the matriarch of the house, Zedel Barnes, her grandmother, her parents, Walt and Elizabeth Barnes, her father's mistress, Fanny Clark, and seven assorted siblings and half-siblings. Um, she is the oldest daughter and the second oldest child, took care of all the children. So Zedel was the head of the household. She paid for the family's life through journalism while her son, Walt, dabbled unsuccessfully in the arts, preached free love, and had violent fits, which he terrifies the family with. Zedel was also a journalist, a suffragist, a spiritualist. She was, had been the hostess of a literary salon in um, London. Juna adored her. She says in some interview, you know, I thought I was my grandmother. She disciplined the children by, um, they were homeschooled, all of the children. They were disciplined in seances, where famous people would come and express their displeasure at the children's behavior. <laughs> this is, uh, it says uh, later in her life when all of her friends in Paris were very into Gurdjieff, uh, Juna just said, his dancers were incredible, so are trained seals. <laughs> so, uh, Juna slept with Zadel in one bed until the age of 16 or 17. Uh, this is a letter from her grandmother when she was 17. It says, Oh, mistress, when I see your sweet hands are hugging your own PTs, I is piss crazy and I jumps on ooh like dis with dis result. The result is that the little PTs, the pink tops, their word for breasts, you know, meet her breasts. Kisses your own mistress and loving grandmother. <laughs> Thank you. I, I heard that. Her biographers, most of them, strangely say, oh, this was just a joke. They, they like to laugh. It's creepy. Everyone, everyone, everyone agrees that it was wildly inappropriate at best, their relationship. Whether or not it was sexual, they disagree. Whether or not if it was sexual, that was a bad thing, her biographers also disagree. <clears throat> uh, what was definitely a bad thing was her relationship with her father, um, at 16, she had her first boyfriend. Her father then either raped her himself or had her raped by a friend. That wasn't good enough for Wald and Zadel, so they married her off to the 52-year-old brother of Fanny Clark, the mistress. It was, um, whether or not it was a legal marriage is unclear, but the couple moved to Connecticut. It was a very short-lived marriage, but Barnes 
disappears for two years. And no one knows what she did. None of her biographers speculate on it. Since I'm not writing a biography, you know, I would speculate. Since I'm, <laughs> you know, she disappeared for at least nine months. Her writing is full of mothers who abandon murder or want to murder their children. And um, I'm hoping she gave it up for adoption. <laughs> That's, um, and anyway, because of this marriage, her mother at least managed to get out. And with the youngest brothers moved to New York City in 1912. Uh, Juna moves in with her mother and brothers in New York. She briefly attended um, art classes at the Pratt Institute. But um, she had to support the family. So she left again. She walked into the offices of the Brooklyn Eagle and you know, told them, I can write and I can draw and you'd be a fool not to hire me. And they did. <laughs> so, <laughs> and um, though that's uh, Juna Barnes, New York. It's out of print, but you can get it. It's a wonder. It's more, her most accessible writing. Um, she was a pioneer of experiential journalism. So she had herself force-fed so she could understand what the English suffragists went through. Um, although uh, she chose a somewhat easier feeding method than they actually went through. Uh, she also visited the zoo's first gorilla. So it says, when she puts her arms around you, it feels something like a garden hose. <laughs> and this is my favorite. She let herself be rescued by firemen. Where she says, space is a good thing into which to hurl epithets, but it's not so agreeable to swing in. <laughs> she does not recommend being rescued by a fireman unless you have to. So <laughs> and she wrote biting descriptions about her own milieu. Um, she also drew for her own, as I said, she can also draw. Uh, here's a description of the 1916 hipster drinking tea in Greenwich Village. He is conscious of the tea growing. He perceives it quivering in the sun. He knows when it died, its death pangs are beating like wings upon his palate. He feels it at its most unconscious moment when it succumbs to the courtship of scalding waters. He thrills ever so lightly to its last and by far its most glorious pain when its lifeblood quickens the liquid with incomparable amber and passes in high pump down the passage of his throat. <laughs> drink to that. <laughs> Around this time, she was engaged to Putzi Hamstengel, who was later close with Hitler. He left her because she wasn't German. She also started working with the Provincetown Players um, and her plays build with Eugene O'Neill, where she began getting the kind of review that would plague her all her life. Here's one. Three from the Earth is enormously interesting. And the greatest indoor sport this week is guessing what it means. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, from 1916 to 1919, she was in a common law marriage with Courtney Lemon. There's no pictures of him, who was a critic from that circle. And had fallen in love with Mary Payne. That's not Mary Payne. That's Elsa from Freitag Loringen. We missed her. She had a brief affair with her. Elsa from Freitag Loringen was a dead lady presented by Florian. And there's a wonderful podcast you can listen to about her. So um, she also sadly chose Juna as her literary executor. So all of the papers are still in some archive. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Juna was not able to do anything with them. So now we should have Mary. Yes, there's Mary Pine, who um, 
contracted tuberculosis and um, Barnes nursed her until she died in 1919. She also became friends with Mina Loy. It looks like she would maybe want to be more than friends, in the, but, but they weren't. Um, <laughs> Loy's feminist views were sort of very typical of the times. Loy wrote, every woman of superior intelligence should realize her race responsibility in producing children in adequate proportion to the unfit or degenerate members of her sex. E. E. But we're not doing no Nazis. We didn't do Mina Loy. Um, (laughs) Barnes did not agree about having children. She said, screaming oneself into a mother is no pleasure at all. And in her first novel, Rider, which is completely impenetrable, after one sex scene, there's a child's hand comes through the door, and it says, holding the India red fountain of all ladies' hope, which I wondered what that meant. And I found that Margaret Sanger, who she definitely knew, they were, she was good friends with Bernice Abbott, they were all in the same circle, um, she held the fountain syringe, as one of the essential contraception for all women. Um, I don't, Barnes did have at least one up to three abortions in her life. The method is unknown. The number is unknown. So, but, um, oh, there's Mina again. <laughs> but Mina, although she had all the children, she didn't actually take care of her children. She left them with a nurse and followed her husband to Mexico where they lived a destitute life but uh, who paid for the nurse, you wonder. And this is a problem that will plague Juno all her life. Her friends are kind of playing the poverty and free love, and uh, she grew up with poverty and free love. Uh, she kn- knew very well always, you know, that um, unconventional households perhaps promised freedom, but they weren't all they were necessarily cut out to be. In 1921, she decided she'd had enough of caring for her family, and she left with everyone else for Paris. There she is. Um, Gertrude Stein's salon was going on for over a decade then. Bernice Abbott was also gone there. The Baroness, here they are on the beach, was also there. Uh, Mina Loy also appeared again. Still not getting anywhere with her. (laughs) (laughs) This is uh, here, uh, Janet Flanner the New Yorker reporter, and her partner, Solita Solano, uh, Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap, who were recovering from the trial for publishing Ulysses in the Little Review. Barnes was quite taken with Jane Heap, perhaps also taken by Jane Heap. All we know (laughs) is the first time she met Margaret Anderson at a Paris bar, she just screamed at her, I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. So... Um, Barnes managed to get to Paris. She was on commission. Peggy Guggenheim had paid for her to write about James Joyce. So she did. James Joyce was one of the few writers that Barnes actually admired. She says, He turned to quill and paper, for so he could arrange in the necessary silence the abundant inadequacies of life as a laying out of jewels, jewels with a will to decay. But he also loved her work, and she was even allowed to call him Jim. (laughs) All of these women frequented Natalie Barney's salon. There she is up atop. Uh, Natalie Barney was a 19th century aristocrat. Um, She wanted to settle a women's colony in Lesbos, but instead they did little lesbian theater pieces (laughs) in the literary salon in Paris. 
She was in a very open relationship with Romaine Brooks, the painter. This is a self-portrait by Romaine Brooks. And Barnes spoofed all of these women in a Romano clef called The Lady's Almanac. Also out of print, I believe, but easy to get. I'm going to read her description of the Natalie Barney's character's funeral. This is a film from 1970 about Natalie Barney and her salon. Also, you can find it on YouTube. And when they came to the ash that was left of her, all had burned but the tongue, and this flamed, and would not suffer ash, and it played about upon the handful that she had been indeed. And seeing this, there was great commotion, and the sounds of skirts swirled in haste, and the patter of much running in feet. But Senorita Flyabout came down upon that urn first, and Beatitude played and flickered upon her face, and from under her skirts a slow smoke issued, though nothing burned. <laughs> and as the day came, some hundred women were seen to bent in prayer. And yet a little later, between them, in its urn on high, they took the ashes and the fire and placed it on the altar in the temple of love. So, and this is kind of typical of how Barnes often dealt with her friends. Uh, Natalie Barney apparently loved the Ladies' Almanac and read it continuously throughout her life. But um, it's clear she turned Barney's Temple of Friendship, which is what she'd called that little temple thing in her garden that we saw, um, into a temple of love, and her tongue into an organ best known for not speaking. So, <laughs> but the, the main event of Barnes's life in Paris was meeting the Silver Point artist, Thelma Wood. Don't ask me what Silver Point is, but there's Thelma. <laughs> um, and their love or its failure was the inspiration for Barnes's great work, which is most known for Nightwood. In it, Juna is Nora and Thelma is Robin. The relationship of Juna Barnes and Thelma Wood is a very complicated one, and it's a major part of the story that is told in Nightwood. But for the first time in Juna Barnes's life, she, in that relationship, she lived in a family situation that made her happy. She stayed with Nora until midwinter. Two spirits were working in her, love and anonymity. Yet they were so haunted of each other that separation was impossible. Nora bought an apartment in the Rue de Cherche Midi Robin had chosen it. In the passage of their lives together, every object in the garden, every item in the house, every word they spoke attested to their mutual love, the combining of their humours. But um, it didn't stay that way. Thelma drank continuously and slept around just as much, and their relationship eventually goes sour. C'était, ça commençait la rupture de, d'elle deux. Et à cette époque-là, quand euh, Thelma est partie, la première, alors Juna, elle était habitée euh, l'hôtel d'Angleterre Jacob. Et c'est là qu'elle s'est mise à boire, à boire, à boire, à boire. À boire, à boire, à boire. Uh, that was... Can I translate for the pod? Um, it, it says that... Um, she was always drinking, and uh, Beat Cleric, who was Natalie Barney's housekeeper, Juna got her the job, and she worked for Natalie Barney until Barney's death, had to take care of Juna, 
who was a boire, boire, boire. She was just drinking because she was so unhappy about the relationship with Thelma. And this is a recurring theme in her friendships. Anyone who was a friend of Juna's, um, Janet Flanner, Margaret Anderson, Charles Henry Ford, Peggy Gunnickenheim, they end up taking care of her. It's uh, what they do. Anyway, Thelma left for the States in 1927. Uh, Juna followed her. That was not a good idea. She went back to Paris in 1930. Um, and she spent most of 31 and 32 in Peggy Guggenheim's estate. This is perhaps, there we are, Peggy. <laughs> uh, it was Haywood Hall, known as Hangover Hall. Uh, Guggenheim paid for everyone. And June in 31 and 32, when she wasn't trying to seduce Peggy's lover, John Holmes, or she was spanking Emily Coleman to orgasm, some f another failed writer, she finished what was to become Nightwood. After finishing the manuscript, she followed her lover, Charles Henry Ford. There he is in a photograph by André Bresson in a pissoir, because we all have photos of our lovers <laughs> photographed by André Bresson. And <laughs> um, to, to Tangier, he was a gay writer, 19 years younger than her. They lived in Paul Bowles' house, where he wrote an impossible-to-understand novel about gay life in New York. It, Unless you're really good at gay 1920s and 30s slang, then you'll understand it. And, <laughs> and, she, and he typed the manuscript of uh, Nightwood for her. But by 1933, she was very depressed. She'd returned to Paris for an abortion. Nightwood was finished. She had nothing to work on. The relationship with Charles was over. Thelma was in the States. There was no work. Hitler had come to power. And so in a letter to a friend, she wrote, what are we going to have, dear, snow or war? Everyone expecting bombs and fury or communism, which is worse. Imagine living in a house with everyone you don't like, making tin cans for the country or something. So <laughs> see, she was not very political, but uh, she did get a publisher for Nightwood due to Emily Coleman's efforts, who somehow convinced T.S. Eliot to edit it and write an introduction for it. And critics, at least loved Nightwood. And now, live from Manchester, hello to you all from the north. Now, Nightwood by Juna Barnes. This is the sort of book that when you were at college and you went back with that very, very nervous girl and she had a sort of nervous breakdown in the toilet while you sat on her bed <laughs> that you leafed through, you know, you plucked out from behind the sort of bowl of stale potpourri and sort of sat reading while she was sobbing into the toilet bowl. But be that as it may, it is a very, very great book indeed. I don't know who I identify with more in that. I'm, I'm sure I also <laughs> discovered Nightwood in college, and I'm, I'm sure I would have also written some disturbing letter to her had I been given the chance. <laughs> um, Helen Fletcher said this about this cover, said, it's not really a chocolate, kindly placed beyond children's reach, saying, you know, the Faber and Faber kind of did everything not to, they made it, it was over... 10 shillings it was you know about the equivalent of 35 euros today so no one really read it it wasn't a popular success but it did get dream reviews and the times literary supplement says 
a wealth of imagery and illusion that seems far more spontaneous than that of Mr. James Joyce, a kind of dark and dithyrambic fecundity as alarming and irrepressible as an angry sea. Or the new statement said about it, the statesman, sorry, Lesbos has never been a happy island. While the suburbs of a certain Mesopotamian city during biblical days reputed to have been destroyed by fire from heaven, but since rebuilt on an even more magnificent scale, enclosed many pleasantly embowered retreats where one-time lovers, now the best of friends, continue to pluck their eyebrows, paint pictures, or cultivate their herbaceous borders in perfect amenity. The airs of Lesbos are sharp with sighs. <laughs> Be that as it may, it did not make it into the modernist canon for being a lesbian love story. It's um, most revered, really, for its monologue by the night watchman, sort of the Song of Solomon figure reimagined as a cross-dressing abortionist. Um, here, in part read by Dylan Thomas. Well, I, Dr. Matthew, mighty grain of salt, Dante O'Connor, will tell you how the day and the night are related by their division. The very constitution of twilight is a fabulous reconstruction of fear. Fear bottom out and wrong side up. Every day is thought upon and calculated, but the night is not premeditated. The Bible lies the one way, but the night gown the other. The night. Beware of that dark door. Despite getting her work read by... Dylan Thomas. She was not doing well. Um, moved between Paris and London, was in and out of clinics trying to get off the wagon. Uh, when the war started, Peggy Guggenheim got Bert Clerick, who we met there, to find her and get her onto one of the very last passenger ships out of Europe. So at 47, with nowhere to go, she lands in the States and moves in with Selma Wood. That was a predictable disaster. Then she moves in with Emily Coleman, who had been with her at Hangover Hall. But Coleman's become Catholic and married a cowboy. That didn't work out well. <laughs> and then she moved in with her mother. That was the worst decision of all. And her mother had her committed to an asylum. When she got out of that, she found that little place in the village, and that's basically where she lived out the rest of her days. She had very little money. Nightwood was a critical success, but it did not make her any money. She lived from um, $115 welfare and a small stipend that Peggy Guggenheim not only paid during her lifetime, but continued to pay after she died. It was in her will that she continued to support uh, Juna Barnes. Peggy, after Peggy died. No, no, no. After Juna died, she didn't get any more money, but she got money. Um, she did write one more play, The Anti-Farm, which again no one understood, but even though it's inscrutable, we will listen because it's one of the very few recordings of Juna's voice. So here she is reading it in what the Paris Review calls that long extinct citizen of the world inflection. Where the martyred wildfowl fly the portal high in the honey of cathedral walls, there is the purchase, governance, and mercy. Her careful sorrow and observed complying swept their guns and mastics to the hive. Of whatsoever stall the heads heaved in, there is the amber. As the high plucked banks of the viol ran out the unplucked stream below, there is the antiphon. 
Yeah, don't ask me what it means, but... <laughs> so there she was in her apartment. She was in pain, drinking ginger ale and ice cream. Um, she wrote many poems that she revised up to 500 times. She did stay in touch with her old friends by letter and phone, although she refused to see anyone. Uh, there's a letter from 69 from Thelma, who wrote to her, Anything to do with us bothers me. The pain is so unequal, I just naturally avoid it when possible. It's been so long a time, it's too much. And she ends the letter with a cheery, Spring is here, but as Rachel Carson said, it is silent. The people have taken everything. I love you as always. <laughs> uh, still, and I, I, I did enjoy rereading Nightwood. <laughs> and her work it reminds us that we're messy creatures and that under the cover of night we often impose our desires on others and in a way do violence to ourselves and ones we love. Uh, Juno says that love is always a form of violence because it's your will and you don't know what the other person's will is. And although we have better things to do, for centuries we've been asking the watchmen have you seen the one my heart loves? Juna Barnes. That was Laura Radosh on Juna Barnes, recorded live from the stage in Berlin's Akut, with assistance from Thomas Beckman and the wonderful Johannes Braun. You may have noticed that some of our previous dead ladies were mentioned, including Bernice Abbott and Elsa von Freitag Doringhoven, who learned both of your dead ladies, so to speak. And if you haven't heard their episodes, do go have a listen. They're delightful. I'll put some links in the show notes to make it easy and go over to our website at deadladyshow.com slash podcast to see photos and more info about Juna Barnes. We heard clips during Laura's talk from the wonderful documentary Paris Was a Woman from 1996 made by Greta Schiller, who I was delighted to find out when I looked her up on IMDb, also directed a documentary about Tiny Davis, the lesbian trumpet player that I briefly mentioned during my also quite lovely talk on Memphis Mini that you can check out on this very pod. Uh, if you can find a copy of the film, I think it's on Canopy, it's on some channels on Prime, your library may have it, your lesbian mom may have it, like my mom had it growing up. Uh, I watched it a lot, which may explain why I've been talking about all these ladies, uh, including Josephine Baker, Janet Flanner, Sylvia Beach, Alice B. Toklas. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, go see it. It's, it really does seem like a greatest hits of dead ladies. <laughs> it really is. And now I understand a little bit more about Florian. <laughs> you know, we also heard a jaunty radio clip, and that was writer Will Self with his cult book corner segment on Mark Radcliffe's BBC One evening show in 1995. If you like Will Self, do have a listen to the whole thing. I, too, heard about Juna Barnes in college, though I can't admit to reading all of Nightwood. Not <laughs> yet, anyway. There are so many anecdotes about her, but my favorite bit of trivia might just be that her last work, the play The Antiphon, which we heard her read a bit of, it was admired so much by none other than Dag Hammarskjöld, the Secretary General of the United Nations, that he translated it into Swedish. That's mad impressive. <laughs> Friends in high places. Yeah. Fans of Juna. It's great. Um, if you'd like to see a live Dead Lady Show, we have a couple of events coming up. If you're in New York, you can see Dead Lady Show NYC at the KGB Bar Red Room on May 24th. And here in Berlin, we'll be back at Akut on May 29th, just Yay. a week later, when Katie will be talking about Sister Mary Ignatius Davis, a Jamaican nun sometimes called the Mother Teresa of Reggae. Ooh. 
I I cannot wait. Cannot I'm wait. so excited. Uh, our returning presenter, uh, the beloved Agata Lisiak, will be speaking about her beloved geographer, Doreen Massey. And I will be presenting writer Paula Fox, um, who you may not know, but is Jonathan Franzen's favorite writer. And if that's not enough of a recommendation, <laughs> um, she's also mine. She's great. Uh, her life story is pretty crazy. She was once mailed a crocodile in the mail. Um... We'll put links uh, for both of those events in the show notes. Uh, don't send us any crocodiles, but you can find out what we're up to by following us over on social media at Dead Lady Show. You can also share the love or the crocodiles with your support over at patreon.com slash Podcast, where we have a special Dead Lady book club for subscribers. The latest edition features a chat with writer Leon Craig about Dead Lady author Tiza Oslu. Thank you to Laura for sharing the story of Juna Barnes. And thanks to you, Florian, for sharing the sofa and the microphone with me today. Thank you, Susan. And also thanks to all of you listeners, fans, and friends out there. We love it when you share our show with others. We'll be back next month with another fabulous Dead Lady. The Dead Lady Show co-founders are Florian Dowsons and Katie Darbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. Our theme song is Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. See you next time. Bye.